James chapter 1. So what's our theme? What's James' theme? To think, act, work, live like a real Christian. You want to put a label over the book of James? Real Christianity. Real religion. It is the lifestyle and the convictions of a biblical Christian. It is written early. It is meant to help those who have newly come to faith to know how to live out their faith, not just profess it. There are validating evidences of true Christianity. Every claimer is not a possessor. That was true then. It is true now. There are to be distinguishing marks because of Christ in you. Old things should pass away. Everything should become new. The way you walk, the way you talk, what interests you, the passions that beat in you ought to be impacted and must be, let me say it that way, by your faith in Jesus Christ because you become a new creation. And if there isn't the evidence and fruit of new creation reality, then you need to ask the question, am I truly a Christian? Obviously, that question is the largest question of all. That's the eternal question. What is my relationship with God? Not whether I'm religious, but whether I have a real relationship with God. James is about what real Christians think like and live like. There are 16 sections. Real Christians, genuine faith is proven and validated, displayed, and matured by the expression of these things. Last week, we looked at verse 26, where we will look again, chapter 1, because James says real Christianity, real religion, genuine faith is proven by how you walk and talk. I've entitled this two verses that we're going to examine, and this will be the second installment. There'll be a third on this one subject because it's so relevant. We're going to look at verse 26, and the title of this section, 26 and 27, which is one of the 16 sections, is Real Christians Have a Religion Seen in Reality. It's demonstrable. They walk their worship, and they do so in four ways. They control their tongue, they visit the vulnerable, they help the helpless, and they stay unstained from the nature of the world and the sins of the world. Genuine faith is proven by how it talks, by how it purposefully walks, in that it proactively cares for the needy and it avoids worldly compromise. Verse 26, let's read it and I'll reacquaint you with it and then we'll jump in and apply it. Verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, and remember the word religious is they think the root of the words used one time is tremble with fear. They're legitimately concerned about being religious. They acknowledge God and they want to live in a way that pleases God. They're sincere, in other words. They are someone who in their own mind, they think this is a subjective but strong conviction. 
I believe I am religious, and I want to be religious. That's the flavor of it. If anyone, remember, unrestricted, doesn't matter who you are, if you're the person teaching the lesson, hearing the lesson, robed, unrobed, young or old, going to church, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his own tongue. The word bridle, and what this is what a bridle does, controls. If anyone does not control his tongue, it's a present active. It's a consistent pattern of controlling your tongue. Tongue is the instrument by which you speak and communicate. Clearly, it will include things that you communicate both verbally and written. And yet does not bridle his own tongue, not someone else's tongue, but the adversative deceives his own heart, deceives his own heart. It's one thing to deceive someone else. It's another thing to deceive yourself. It's the deepest kind of deception. Self-deception is the darkest kind of deception because you're unaware. This man's religion is worthless. The word worthless is used in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, if Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, your faith is worthless, has no value, has no substance, has no weight, unproductive because it's not living, it's not real doesn't have relevance, really. So think about the claim of this verse. Real Christians control or bridle their tongue. And if as a consistent, not perfectly, because you remember James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, that's mature, able to control his own body. If you can control your tongue, you're a mature person, But tongues are hard to control. We'll see that in James chapter 3. I thought about calling this taming your tongue. T, T. It's a preaching thing. You letters that connect, staying unstained, helping the helpless. See how it works? I want it tame real bad. But there's a verse in James chapter 3 which says nobody can tame their tongue. This is not about taming. This is about controlling. This is about consistently controlling and bridling what you say. Why? Because what comes out of your mouth reveals what's in your heart. It's out of your heart that your mouth talks. So to refrain your tongue is a direct evidence of true religion. And the absence of an ungoverned, unbridled, uncontrolled tongue is the evidence of a hollow claim. If your mouth is unrestrained in biblical categories where restriction is expected and required, you are not a Christian, James would say. No matter what you say, by way of the claim... 
Your words betray you. They expose you. Now, that's not meant to make you mad. That's to inform you so you can examine your heart. If this is you, this is not about you judging who you live with in your family. This is not about you being responsible for someone else. This is not so that you can armor up or load up and unload. This is about you as an individual If perchance you are deceiving yourself about the nature and quality and reality of your religion. Because James is real religion. And if you don't control your tongue, you don't have real religion. That's what this is about. Last week we started out with, and there's 10 on my list so far. These are the ones we covered. Real Christians, therefore, consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from some things, controlling some things. Number one, we said much speech, too much talking and too many words. Why? Because Proverbs ten nineteen, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains, that would be a synonym for bridles, his lips is wise. A fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. A man of knowledge restrains his words. He guards his tongue. Too much speech is not profitable. Number two, we said real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from rash words. Rash words. Words without enough thought. I would call this no filter speech. Ecclesiastes 5.2, do not be hasty to speak. A rash speaker, says Proverbs 12, is like the piercings of a sword. Think, deliberate before you open your mouth. Real Christians, number three, consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from hurtful words. Words that injure, destructive to the heart words. 1 Peter chapter 3, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from kakos, evil, destructive evil, and his lips from deceitful speech. And we saw that the context for the evil speech, the evil action, is when you receive an insult, you do not insult in return, but you give a blessing instead. Blessing is the opposite of a curse. So there's no retaliatory words. Hurtful words are typically spoken as a consequence of feeling hurt. Control that. It's the opposite of blessing. Hurtful words. Bridle your tongue. Manipulative words, number four, or deceptive words. I call them tricky words. You look Christian, you feign concern and loyalty, but in fact, you're intent on diminishing someone in someone else's eyes. Because the rest of chapter 1 Peter 3.10 is refrain or stop doing evil and from deceptive speech. The word deceptive is tricky. It's manipulative. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from from being deceitful, Psalm 34, 13. 
So the man who deceives his neighbor says, I was only joking. I didn't mean that. When in fact, there was truth behind what you said. It's that. Stop that. Control that. Number five, real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from destructive words. Turn with me back to Ephesians 4, and we're going to dig into this section of Scripture today, and we're picking up where we left off, and we're forging forward into where we need yet to go about bridling your tongue. Real Christians control their tongue. That's a fact. Consistently, not perfectly. And they control it in part because they refrain from destructive words. Let me define a destructive word. A word that tears down and does not build up someone else's spirit. Your words do not edify. Ephesians 4.29, a reflection of the being the recipient of the mercies of God. This is walking in a manner worthy. Verse 1, chapter 4. Here's the exhortation. Let no unwholesome, you know that word, spoiled, foul, rotten, Let's just use foul. Let no foul word proceed from your mouth. I want to emphasize no, but only, on the other hand, only such a word as is good. The word good, practical good, and for edification. The word edification comes from a word which we would use for building a house, something that would build someone up. Only such a word as is good, practically beneficial for someone, for building up according to the need, so it's time-sensitive, it's fitting, uh, in the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. No destructive words, because destructive words tear down, they don't build up. So the goal of the Christian is to strengthen someone's soul by building them up, not tearing them down. How often can I tear someone down as a Christian? When do I get the exception to tear someone down? Answer, never. Let there be no unwholesome speech, but only, do you hear the emphasis? Only words that strengthen the soul, only words that build somebody up, Only words that are offered in a constructive way. Now listen, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Open rebuke is better than hidden love. This is not to say that my words can't be difficult, confrontive, honest, but they're designed to elevate, not harm. If a brother comes to me and says, Harry, you ought not, or you ought to think about, I'm concerned about, and they say something hard to hear, It does not mean it's not meant to build me up. It's just hard to hear. So this does not disqualify calling someone to the truth, but it must be done in love. Real Christians do not injure with their speech, but rather, 1 Peter chapter 3, not returning insult for insult, but they give a blessing instead. Ulageo, they say something good. One of you came up to me last week and said, so how do I respond with a blessing without coming across as hollow or insincere? 
In other words, having heard that that's a requirement and an expectation of a Christian living out their Christianity in reality, how do I do that without it feeling fake? Well, number one, I want you to be sincere. But here's the way I would answer that if someone injures you, because we talked about injury provoking you to seek to retaliate instead of giving a blessing instead. And I know this is perfect world, thought about the answer. In the moment could be more challenging, but if someone injures you, perhaps someone you live with, a spouse, here's how you might apply that principle. So let's suppose Karen injures Harry at my house. Karen is my wife. She injures me. What do I do to give a blessing instead? Well, number one, I would think about saying, Karen, I want you to know that what just happened really stung. It hurt me. And I know that is not what you would normally want. You see how it turned a corner? You are an other-centered, kind, caring, and patient person. That's who you are. This event does not define you. Listen, one of the things we do with each other is we use you always or you never. Blessing instead is to recognize who they really are. You're an other-centered person, kind, caring, and patient. Karen, I must have done something that really missed the mark to cause you to speak to me in the way that you have or do what you have chosen to do, to cause you to respond that way. And for that, whatever I did, and sometimes you're ignorant of what you did, at least as this husband is, I'm really sorry I did And if you know what it is, name that. I'm really sorry I ignored you. I'm really sorry that I was abrupt with you. I'm really sorry that I furrowed my brow and rolled my eyes. I'm sorry I was late when I promised I'd be home. I'm sorry I didn't help when I said I would. You fill in the blank. I'm sorry for that, whatever that is. Don't say, if I've made you. No, I've actually somehow frustrated you, own it. You might add, if it would be true, you must have had a hard day, and I'm sure I added to it. Here's a blessing instead. What can I do to make that up to you? Feel the difference? You say, that is not reality. It should be if you're a Christian. If you're walking in the Spirit of God, you will express the patience of the fruit of the Spirit. Macrothemeo, you'll be long-fused. Here's what I've learned as a husband. When I have margin, I behave differently. My tongue is slower. My response is less reactive. This is not something you can leave classed at angle. You know what? I'm going to do it. You know, I've been guilty of that. Hear a sermon inspired by Scripture, I'm going to buckle down. Listen, make a resolution, but be desperately dependent upon the God of heaven to give you the assets you need to succeed. Without me, Jesus said, you can do. You know what nothing is? Anybody know the Greek word? Meaning? Lexically? Nothing. Zero. 
not one thing, not some things, not most things, not the little things. Without me, you can't do anything. Give a blessing instead. Only, listen to this, if you don't leave, if you leave here today with one thing, resolve, I'm only going to use words that make souls stronger. All right, number six. This is where we landed last week. Real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from, I'm going to use this word, grace-stealing words. Look at verse 29, that it may give grace to those who hear. There's an end purpose of your words. It is meant to bless people with the joy of God's favor, conduited through you. Grace-stealing words are words that steal the joy of God's favor and the delight of God's grace. Have you been watching the uh, Kanye West story? Yes? So who's not interested in that if you're a Christian? Is he saved? Is he not saved? Has he changed? Has he not changed? Well, Adam Tyson, who's... Pastor Adam, if you're watching the internet, he's the guy that's traveling sometimes with Kanye. And Adam's a friend of mine. So I asked him, I said, Adam, do you think he's converted? Because if you read the internet, and part of the challenge of this is the number of haters and skeptical assessors. I get it. This is Kanye. Have you ever heard any of his music? I can't listen to his music. It's too much foul language. The themes are too, I wanted to, just to find out who he was. He's popular. And then he's married to one of the Kardashians. So you take that culture, you take who he was, he makes this claim, he's doing these Sunday services, and you're going, hmm. I put on my assessor and I'm going, I don't know. And then I watch it and I go, I'm not thinking. Is he saved? Is he not saved? Anybody know? Answer, no, you don't know. So I asked Adam, so Adam, what do you think? He said, Ari, I think he's truly converted. I spend three hours a week with him. We go through it through theology. He said he wants to radically follow Christ who's radically saved him and loved him. Isn't that a good thing to hear? I was excited to hear that. You know what he said recently, and it was published? I used language that was inappropriate for a Christian. None of my music is going to have that language in it again. Isn't that cool? Now, what are you thinking? Nervous, aren't you? (laughs) Because you've seen this before. Right? You've seen somebody, celebrity, profess change. They skyrocket up with all their zeal, and then you end up looking sometimes like seed planted in shallow soil. Is that fair? Sure, that's fair. But I'll tell you what's not fair assuming the worst. I, 
Adam is my friend, and part of what he's gone through is all the skeptics who are skeptical about his involvement in Kanye's life, and then he travels and he's preaching, but sometimes the, the preaching is maybe not as deep. And we've talked about that, and he wants the gospel to be clear and plain. You know what I think Adam wants to hear from God's people? Is I'm with you, I'm praying for you, I'm supporting you. You know what that is? Grace-giving words. I don't know Kanye's heart. I don't know if he's truly converted. But I'm excited to think based on what I've seen, he may be. And what I want to do is encourage that, not steal the potential of that. Because part of the reason why new believers walk away or get disenchanted or want to give up is because where they ought to sense support, they don't get it. I, I, I'm reserved. I've not decided in terms of, because I, I don't know. Time will do what? Tell. But I'll tell you what, I want to encourage whatever I see that looks like the work of God. Refrain your lips from words. Some of you are discerners. Some of you are quick to the trigger. God's gifted you with eyes that see. You've been well taught. And you're, you're potentially prone to use that discernment and that knowledge to become a skeptic of everything that's not perfect. Don't steal the joy of God's favor encourage what is good and trust God for what still needs to happen. Anybody here finished yet? And if you raise your hand, we will all say, no, you're not. (laughs) And we could say that with a high degree of confidence. What are some grace-stealing words? Let me give you some. You're worthless. You're ugly. You'll never amount to much. You're such a disappointment. I don't like you. I hate you. You should be ashamed of yourself. How about this one? I should have never married you. You know what those are? Hurtful, grace-stealing words. I've been a pastor a long time. I cannot tell you how many times those kinds of words lodge in a person's heart, and they pester them and challenge them and assault them for year after year after year. Be a grace giver. Grace giving words, you matter. You're made in the image of God. You're just the way God wanted you to be. You're loved at your best and at your worst. You're uniquely gifted. These are truth statements. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're God's child. You're a vessel of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, you're talking to a believer in that case. I see potential in you. I value you. I'm proud of you. I like you. I appreciate you. You're so good at that. I love it when... Fill in the blank. You need to learn the art, Christian, 
of seeing something good and verbalizing it. Because you know what? There's good in people who know the Lord. There's good in people who don't know the Lord. I said something this past week to someone talking about students, and you know, I'm, I deal with students at the university. And I said to this person, I have yet to see the student who got better by calling them bad. You're just a bad person. You're a bad actor. Your motivations are bad. How many students do you think are inspired by that transaction? When in fact, you could say, you know what? This is not what you were meant to be. You got more in you than this. That was a boneheaded move. And you ought not have done it. But I believe you can make a difference and you can be different. Do you want to be? If you want to be, I'll help you to be. Do you feel the difference? Be that kind of parent, be that kind of husband, be that kind of wife, be that kind of boss, be that kind of Christian. Because we all stumble in many ways. I want you to see something that ought to sober you. Look at verse 30. Do you see the first word of verse 30? What is it? It's and. You know what and is? It's a connective word. It's called a conjunction. Whatever just got said in verse 29 is connected to verse 30. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Here's the sobering outcome if you don't control your tongue as it relates to destructive, grace-stealing words. You grieve the Holy Spirit. The word grieve, it's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis 3, verse 16. Do you know what kind of grief it referred to? Childbirth. Deep pain. The word grieve, first of all, indicates that God's a person who feels. And it's, it says plainly that you, as his representative and as his child, as his family member, when your tongue is foul, when it's hurtful, destructive, not building up, when it's not grace-giving, it's grace-stealing, it, you know what it does? It grieves his heart. It pains him. Not a little bit, a lot. Let me give you another illustration of this word. Matthew 17, 23, Jesus, when he gathered with his disciples in Galilee, verse 26, he told them this. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were, here's the word, deeply distressed. So Jesus, their leader, I'm going to suffer and die. Having heard those words, something happened in them emotionally. Pain happened in them. They were deeply distressed. Same word, greatly grieved. 
You not only hurt yourself when you can't control your tongue because you deny yourself the blessing. You were called to inherit a blessing. 1 Peter 3. Not only do you hurt others with those hurtful words, you hurt your father. Number seven, real Christians consistently bridle their tongue from, get this, crass and cuss words. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, just go down a few verses. Paul is talking about the character of a Christian. They're to be imitators of God as to his children. They're to walk in love, verse 2. Verse 3, no immorality or impurity or greed even to be named among you as is proper among saints. Watch verse 4. This is the tongue part. There must be no filthiness. There's three words he's going to use. Filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. And he's going to say of these tongue expressions, they are not fitting. They're not proper. They're not consistent. They don't fit the character of a Christian because they don't reveal the quality, holiness, and character of God. The first word is used once in the New Testament. The word filthiness, some of your Bibles may say obscene. You have to go to extra biblical literature to understand what is forbidden. This word, ascrates, means baseness, dishonor. Here's how we would say it, gutter speak. Generally, we would put cussing in this category. It's crude. It's crass. It's not fitting in the culture. Even the culture would recognize you don't say that. The culturally low words, words that a gentleman or a woman of honor would never use. Listen, it's interesting that they just did a study on cussing and some of the language people use, and they, they're real psychological and emotional physical impacts when people are cussed at. It has an effect. Listen to Colossians 3, 8, but now you must put aside all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, which is gossip, we'll talk about that next time, and filthy language from your mouth. Listen, there's a whole category of words in the Bible and in the English language, which we call crude, we call it crass, we call it vulgar, and we call it indecent. Those words are invented because human beings in every culture have felt certain things are inappropriate. Every culture has something that they view as offensive, off-color, and rude. So from a cultural standpoint, here's what a Christian says. I'm not going to use language that's offensive even to the culture. I'm not going to use cuss words because I, I was hearing, I think, a Fox guy last night, Juan Williams, talking about President Trump and his latest rally. And Juan said in response to the speech that was given and the narrative that our president was using, this was his response. 
My greatest, this is paraphrased, but this is the gist of it. My greatest pain and grief is that that person is our president talking like a non-president. Do you know what he was saying? That office, there's an expectation. Five times the word profane is used in the Bible. It comes from a Latin word, which means before fane, the temple. There are certain words you ought not use at church. There are certain words you ought not use expected if you have this dignified of a position. There's certain language a pastor ought not use. There's certain language a Christian ought not use. The kind of language that reflects perverse things, filthy things, dirty things, unacceptable and inappropriate things. How many times? No time. It's not fitting. Christians should represent the highest sense of the culturally honorable, not play in the filth of the culturally dishonorable. If the culture declines, we ought to hold the standard of nobility. Christians are to be different in a good way. Listen, the Bible forbids... 1 Corinthians 13 gives 15 attributes of love. In verse 5, it says love, which is the highest priority... We are to be known by our love. We're to reflect love. Love does not, here it is, behave unbecomingly. Some of your Bibles will say rude. Unseemly, if you have a King James translation. You know what rude and unbecoming is? It's unbecoming in that it's shameful and disgraceful based on the standard of acceptable speech. You say things that are not appropriate, they're inappropriate, they're indecent, they're disgraceful. They're things that if somebody heard you say and they were recorded and promoted in a certain setting that, like today, let's record you for the week and let's play it on a Sunday. Ashamed or unashamed? If it's unbecoming, guess what you feel? Ashamed. You know why? It's inappropriate. Why is it inappropriate? It's not consistent with what a Christian ought to be in light of who we are or even in our culture. We use words as if they don't matter. Paul says, oh, yes, they do. Filthiness, cussing, crass, perverse. Listen, it doesn't matter what the world does. It matters what we do. Love forbids rude. Look, four-letter words, unless they begin with the word L and they include O-V-E, should not be the regular work of your vocabulary. Commentator Gill writes this, all filthy gestures and behavior, every indecent habit and attire, and all actions which have a tendency to excite impurity The words and what they mean reveals an impure heart. And the means of corrupting men's minds and manners comes from filthy speaking. Listen to this statement. Verbal commission of the things that are spoken of. So when you say it, 
you're verbally committing by communicating, he says, a reflection on the action. You're not guilty of the action, but you're guilty of reflecting on an unholy action. Here's what a Jew would say. Filthy speaking is not only the verbal commission of the things that are spoken of, it may include all, this is the Jewish commentators, included all impure songs and books, the readings and the hearings of it, and what the Jews called all filthiness of the mouth, obscene words which they say they would not use on a feast day. In other words, they're going to clean up their language because it's worship week. So you clean up your language on a Sunday because it's the Lord's day. But you're a Christian. And Christians ought to reflect their Christianity every day. Crass and crude and profane is unacceptable. A coachman pointing to one of his horses, said to a traveler, that horse knows when I swear at him. The traveler said back, yes, and so does your maker. Real Christians restrain their tongue from the speech that may be common, but wholesale unacceptable for a child of God. Can you say amen to that? got some more. Father, thank you for the challenge that is today, and thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word in ways that in some circumstances and in some lives we've gotten callous to. We are being formed and conformed to the world. Instead of being a light in the darkness, instead of being noble with our speech, We've adapted and adopted to the culture speak. We use words that are inappropriate for a Christian. They're perverse. They're indecent. They're crass. They're crude. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. And we're asking you today, by your grace and through your spirit, to guard the door of our mouth. Fill us with the one who is holy. Saturate our mind that we might dwell in the scripture in a way that it filters what we might say and help us to speak only such a word as might make souls strong and invites the favor and the delight of God's unmerited grace. Lord, we ask that today, that we would be truly Christian in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.